Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the 12-step programs that assists recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Uh, I'd like to welcome Lou and Jane to the show. Hi there. Hello. Hi. They're members of Al-Anon Family Groups, and they'll be sharing their journey of recovery from the family disease of alcoholism and talking about how Al-Anon has helped them cope with the effects of someone else's drinking. So, Lou, I'll start with you. We usually talk about growing up and family life and the influences in your life and, you know, how you came in contact with alcoholism. Well, my background, I always thought was really quite normal. Um, I grew up in England, as you can hear from the accent. We were a family of two girls. Uh, My sister was uh, about three years older than me, but we had an older brother who was many years older than us. Um, And I remember growing up, there were stories of him running away to sea and uh, these sort of urban myths that happened in in families. But we, we, we were relatively respectable in inverted commas. Dad had a butcher's shop. Uh, We lived in a a not too bad house and we were all perfectly normal. What I didn't appreciate many years later was that there was always drinking in our house sporadically. And uh, I don't know that dad was a problem drinker, but he was he used to have a a couple of beers when he came home from work because he'd had a hard day's work. Um, There were occasional Um, family gatherings where drink always had a focus but I I describe us as we weren't a typical crushing and burning alcoholic family Um, so I was the youngest in the family and had a a relatively normal childhood. So what about friendships and going to school? I always felt on the outside so even as a small child I always felt not good enough, not clever enough, not pretty enough, uh, not enough for anybody. Uh, And this is is with hindsight and some self-reflection. So I went to an ordinary primary school. I went to one of the best secondary schools in England. So quite academically orientated school, where again, I was never quite good enough, never quite clever enough, and always towards the bottom of the class rather than the top of the class. So that sort of uh, set a pattern for my thinking, I think, in that uh, I never thought I I deserved the best or very much in life. What about friendships? Was that easy? Well, yes, because um, I I developed the persona of uh, trying to uh, fit in. So I would fit in with what other people wanted of me. And I quickly found that I had the gift of humour. So I could be the class clown, the um, person that made people laugh on the bus. Um, so fitting in wasn't hard, um, but it was the de- to the detriment of me um, making smart decisions about myself and taking control of my life and even and even paying attention in class, which is always a good idea if you want to uh, get an education. So how about you, Jane? What was life like for you growing up? Mine was similar in that I'm one of five, though, and I was the middle child. Look, I always thought we sort of had a good family, you know. Yeah, just we were sort of like everybody else. But there was always that element of alcohol and my mother was the big drinker. My dad drank, but not nowhere near as much as my mum. But she was a functioning alcoholic. She did a lot of things for other people. But it was like our job, like at night, she'd hold her wine glass out to you and you had to go up to the kitchen and get her a refill and things like that. She'd also grown up in a violent alcoholic home. And I didn't realise till later on and uh, probably in late teens. And my brother said to me, 
there's something not right about our family, but I just can't put my finger on it. And I think it was very important that we we weren't as good as some people, but we were way better than other people. We were always brought up to be like that. Yeah, so it was definitely there. And my mum's drinking has progressed over the years. So, yeah, it was, when I look back, probably in early childhood, it wasn't a factor, but definitely from teenage years onwards. So did that affect your friendships or bringing people home? No, not really. I loved going to other people's houses, though. Um, And mum could be quite um, critical of not so much of our friends, but our friends' parents. So it probably didn't not so much make me awkward to bring them home. Like, we didn't have many people stay over. I think more because we had five kids. Yeah, but I probably... It wasn't really such a big thing. I mean, yeah, probably I went to other people's houses way more than I had them come home, yeah. But everybody loved my mum. They thought I had the cool mum and all I wanted was the 1950s housewife in the apron at the sink, yeah. Oh, back to you then, Lou. So leaving secondary school, how did life change for you? I was never very clear what I wanted to do. So I I didn't even, I, I changed schools partway through high, primary school and again I think in hindsight that's been a pattern um I felt as though I hadn't didn't fit anywhere so I changed schools and when I got into the jobs market I chose I chose a college chose a career changed that after six months um so I was very unsettled and un what's the word I'm looking for I, I was constantly looking to belong somewhere and didn't and pretty soon hooked up with, found the, the opposite sex in my life and, and pretty soon started to hook up with boys that were either mum wouldn't have approved of or mum did approve of, but there were hidden problems. So, for example, I was engaged fairly early in probably well, about 17, 18, I was engaged to a boy who... who mum certainly approved of because he was uh, the son of a millionaire but that relationship although it wasn't um, physically abusive it was certainly emotionally abusive and, and so very early on in my career of dating I was dating people who didn't treat me as I should have been treated and I, I very much allowed that to happen. So why do you think that was? Why do you think you allowed that to happen? I think it was this uh, lack of solid self-worth and sense of self. You know, that, that story of me not never feeling good enough. I think that comes from childhood, partly historically. You know, I'm in my early 60s now. And parents, although it wasn't quite the seen and not heard period, there was no such thing as, as connecting with your children and having positive conversations and positive reinforcement. And dad had fought in the war. And I really don't think my parents knew how to parent. So consequently, um, you know, I, I had my first child, my only child, I have to say, uh, at, at 19. And I didn't know how to parent either. So there was this passing on of of poor role modelling and poor techniques. Um, so I think that low self-esteem that uh, I've carried with me for quite some time went into those uh, relationships with, with the opposite sex and, and there were never relationships that made me feel whole and positive. Uh, they always made me feel less than, and, and I hate to say it, probably grateful that somebody was paying me attention. Yeah, it's sad, sad looking back, isn't it, when you see yourself in that position that you know you so so want to be loved and be part of that you put up with other things, yeah. Uh, so how about you then, Jane? Did life change sort of leaving school, leaving home? I think life changed for me probably around year nine and ten. Same thing when I discovered boys and I was was very academic at school and I probably could have done really well. But my peers were everything to me and it was very important to be in the cool group or what I considered the cool group. I would do anything to fit in that group. So I probably, if I really, I always looked before I left though, but I, if I really felt something and I felt my friends thought differently, I'd never voice what I said. 
if I felt like I'd said the wrong thing, I would just worry about it so much that I wouldn't be accepted in this group. And I think at home, the dynamic in the family was there was only one boy. Mum was very, everything was about not upsetting him and he was sort of difficult when he was little. And my elder sister, and then we had a much younger sister, but I had a sister, I was the middle child and the one above me was only 15 months old. And I always felt older than me. I always felt that we were sort of considered, and mum always said, oh, you're the easy ones. But it was, we didn't get the attention and I felt to get the attention, I had to be the fastest runner, I had to be the cleverest, I had all that sort of stuff. So I think I carried that with me for a long time. And then when I started to, you know, I just loved that going away on weekends, the party scene, all that sort of stuff. And I probably just took the first job I could when I'd always planned to, like, go to university. And I was the same. I always liked the guy that was a little bit out of reach and probably the ones that didn't treat me well. And I didn't – I always felt like I didn't deserve it. I was lucky if a guy turned around and looked at me or liked me. And, therefore, I did probably pick the ones that, you know, didn't treat me that well. And I was never myself. And it's really interesting, just I'm probably getting ahead of ourselves, but I married the al- an alcoholic and a, him and my partner I'm with now would be the only two men that I've been 100% myself with. So, yeah, it's a bit like you're living a lie. I think my self-esteem was really low. And I think also in my late teenage years, I think mum felt that she'd missed out on a lot, you know, got married at 21 You know, mum died when she was 10. And I think she tried to live through us a bit in that teenage thing and the drinking. That was when it really got noticeable. And I would get embarrassed when I had friends over, yeah. So what sort of situations did your mum put you in? I don't know. Look, maybe it wasn't only the alcohol, but she'd want to come up and play the records with us and use the lingo and, you know, always would be drinking a lot. Yeah, that sort of thing. I feel like... um, and this was when it was starting to progress. And I just felt like that none of my other friends' mothers did that. And I didn't want her to be like that. I didn't want her to be in that sort of, that involved with us. Because, you know, they, mum and dad were very, very social. They had a big, but dad was different to mum. And I probably, relate, I think I'm more probably like dad. But in our family, mum was always right. And she was very strong personality. So even probably even up until 10 years ago, I still would think, oh, what would mum think if I did this? She, it, was a, it was a very con- confusing situation because you had this loyalty but you knew it wasn't quite right either, yeah. So what did your dad do with your mum drinking? A lot of times she wasn't that lying in the gutter drunk and I think dad, like they genuinely loved each other but I think dad did anything to keep the peace and I think... Mum knew how to manipulate and I think she knew how to, well, you did this. And when we were first married, oh, it was like being married to a bachelor because you had your golf and your footy and your cricket. And I don't know. And I think he believed that. And I think he he felt that that was his job to make mum happy. Yeah. Yeah, I think that I think alcoholics do that all the time. Transfer guilt. Good way of controlling people. Oh, and she can still do it now and she's 85. Yeah. So, and I think I kind of... Um, as I got older and lived in a similar situation to my dad, I probably had more compassion for him, but sometimes he should have stepped in, I think, yeah. She was very controlling in our lives and what she said and stuff like that, yeah. So how about you, Lou? So what was your family dynamic like with your parents? Well, Dad was um, uh, Czech in origin, and like a lot of immigrants, they tend to be very hardworking and uh, very driven to provide for the family. So he'd left a country that was invaded first by the Nazis and then the Russians uh, and came to England wanting to provide for his family. And he he did. He was very hardworking. But it was very obvious as a child growing up that my parents didn't actually like each other very much (laughs) um, and didn't spend too much time with each other, or me for that matter. So that, that was the background. And the alcoholic that brought me to Al-Anon came many years later after my first marriage had uh, uh, dissolved. And that's not to say that was my only brush with alcoholism, um, but it was my first acknowledgement that I was having a brush with alcoholism. So although the family of origin was was a hail fellow well-met and party-ish on my dad's side, Um, There was no obvious 
signs that alcoholism was causing a problem. Uh, it was more the personality clashes that were the challenge of the family dynamics, I think. Uh, well, listen, we might take a short break there. Midsummer Sun by Feverland, courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. 
We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Huawei's Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Huawei's Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 500. That's 1300 500. Wellways supports 3CR. Six years I've been in prison. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 8377. Oh, living free. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kHz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then either head to your preferred podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free show and how to contact us. Today I'm talking with Lou and Jane, and we're talking about recovery from the family disease of alcoholism with the help of Alan on Family Groups. So Jane, you finished off talking about the relationship between your mum and your dad and leaving home. So how did things change leaving home for you? Yeah, look, I still lived around the corner from mum and dad. I shared an apartment with a girlfriend. So my life just continued along, but I'd lived in Queensland for nearly a year and I had an awful relationship there with someone who was, I was only 19. I would say he was an alcoholic. He probably was addicted to drugs. He was constantly unfaithful, but I just had this, I was just devastated when it finished. So I don't know, there was something wrong there. And I came home and life just went on. And then when I was about 22, I met my husband, who I was with for 22 years. And, look, I probably saw a couple of signs of terrible drinking with him but in the early days. But he only did it on the weekend. And, you know, that old thing. I just had this thing where I just was so fearful that I would end up, not that I was scared of being by myself, being on my own, not having a partner, not having children. And, look, I did love him and he was, when he was good, he was caring, but his drinking just, he'd go through really good stages and but it just escalated and there's, you know, things that I, he was way worse than my mum ever was, yet he had a very good job and he was very, never missed days of work or anything like that. But the difference with him, his drinking when we were at, out with friends or whatever at a party it was embarrassing and I I just never relaxed I just learned to when we were out at friends learned to continually watch leave early make him come home with me stopped having dinner parties people over because if people came to our house I couldn't ask them to leave but if we went to theirs we could go yeah and just you know wet beds making a bed up in the lounge room I tried to do everything, you know, threatening, 
uh, not talking, which I'm not good at, so that wouldn't last for very long, trying to protect the kids. And so what the way I coped when I look back now, I didn't even really realise my life was unmanageable, but all the stuff we went through, I learned to live through my kids and I learned to be constantly busy. And I think that was how I coped and I lived a lie. There were so many of my friends that didn't know that that was how I lived my life. So that's how it progressed. If your friends didn't know, how did you cope with seeing them have what seemed like normal lives? How did that strike you? Oh, I just knew that was what I wanted. I just, you know, I had a couple of friends that, you know, been with their partners for 16 years and I thought, you know, they had the perfect lives. Yeah, and I just wanted to change him. But I had this incredible loyalty to him as well. And, you know, if he had a shocking binge on the weekend, like he could, I would see him on a Sunday and he would be so anxious and so regretful. I'd have this incredible sort of pity for him. Yeah, so it was just so many mixed emotions and so many things to me that didn't seem... I don't know, they all seem to go against each other, these feelings of loyalty and then just being furious, uh, revolted by him, just losing respect. But I knew deep down that he was a good guy and I always felt with him the drinking, it did go through. When he was stressed, he was always way worse. And, yeah, I felt like towards the end I just lived on my life on eggshells. But I didn't know where to go for help. I rang AA and they mentioned Eleanor, but... I didn't do anything about it, yeah, in the early days, yeah. And then I thought, oh, it's not really that bad. Like, he's not sitting in the gutter, yeah. It's good, isn't it, how we justify it to ourselves? So, Lou, you talked about leaving your first marriage and starting a second one. So how did you meet the alcoholic? Uh, We worked together. So I was a single parent, sort of managing, having jobs that enabled me to look after a child and put food on the table. So I was managing financially, but I met this guy at work who was, you know, the Jack the Lad at work, the one that everybody admired but didn't behave very well, played football at the weekend. That's the football with the round ball. Um, And um, was, you know, the all-round popular guy. Uh, And very, very soon uh, of of me starting to work where he worked, uh, we struck up a relationship and we'd go for drinks after work. And uh, and in in the early part of the relationship, I was very happy living that uh, pub lifestyle uh, where we'd go straight to the pub after work and uh, drink together and go nightclubbing. It was all the things that probably I should have done in my teenage years and didn't. Um, So it was a bit like being a teenager in my 20s. And as a result of that, I can see again that with hindsight, I I, um, neglected my responsibilities as a parent. So there's a little boy in the middle of all this nonsense that um, I'm getting babysitters in for and palming off on my mum and not really being the mum that I should have been. And pretty soon... Uh, the drinking got a bit boring, for me anyway. But it escalated with my partner at the time. Escalated so much that he would miss days off work and eventually he got sacked from his job uh, because of the drinking. I heard Jane say how her husband was a, knew he was a decent guy. Mine definitely wasn't a decent guy. He had come from a horrifically abusive background His father committed suicide at the age of 42 with drink and paracetamol and took a fortnight to die. Uh, But when he was living, he was beating his wife up, who was my partner's mum, every weekend. And she would be in traction in hospital. So this was the background of, of the partner that I'd chosen. And pretty soon the violence started to come into our relationship. Uh, So it was sharp words and then slamming doors and then punching holes in doors and then the shoving and the pushing and the violence started within our relationship. But because in between those periods, and this is going to sound insane to people that haven't lived with with domestic violence, uh, because he was so good in between periods and so remorseful, so apologetic, 
I can see that I contrasted those nice times with the bad times. And it was a bit like comparing black and white. You're not actually comparing apples with apples or apples, but you're comparing apples with pears. So the stark difference between what I see to be normal behavior, a respectful relationship, uh, and this violent relationship, I hung on to the fact that, well, it could be all right. Next time it'll be all right. We will, we will have this normal life. And so I set about on a course of action that tried to preserve the normal bits, or at least the nice bits. So I'd, I'd, I'd do the manipulation. So I'd invite nice people to come and have dinner with us and, and find nice friends for him and discourage the not nice people in, in our lives. And, you know, I'd, I'd arrange dinner parties but there'd be a chair empty where he was supposed to be because he wouldn't turn up. Uh, so despite my manipulations, the alcoholic always managed to uh, carry on with his drinking and the behaviour. And, and he was a gambler as well, so he liked the horse racing. Uh, our first holiday, we agreed that I would buy the flights and he would save up the spending money. So he had his big pile of cash on the mantelpiece for our holiday the next day and all of a sudden it evaporated <laughs> so it had gone on the back of a horse so there we are holiday booked flights booked no spending money so my, my life with him was a period of those massive highs and massive disappointments because his drinking would take precedence over any promises he made or any um, agreements we had um, and that was our life for several years. So did it affect your friendships? Uh, yeah I, I wasn't a very good friend to people because at the downside uh, I desperately needed people to moan to uh, and pity me and and even to get shelter from because I was living in a violent situation and I can see now that I was I abused those friendships because I wouldn't get in touch until the next time I needed them. So I wasn't a very good friend to people. And pretty soon the friends did drop off. Uh, they got a bit fed up of being treated like that. And, and I can see, see why. Um, so pretty soon I became isolated and even more dependent on the alcoholic for my validation, my entertainment, my protection, my everything. And he, he became my whole world. So what did that isolation feel like for you then in daily terms? Were you still working, I assume? Yeah, yeah, very, very much. And uh, Jane mentions functioning alcoholics. I was a functioning potential Al-Anon member. Uh, so it was only my close friends who knew the craziness that I lived with. Uh, and of course, the next door neighbours, because there were always lots of violent arguments at weekends. It was enforced isolation. I, again, with hindsight, I can see that people were wanting to help, but I wasn't ready to be helped. And, and the... The, the pinnacle or the, the breaking point for me was I got an interview several miles away for, a, for my first really good professional job. Um, so I travelled down to London for the interview and found out on the drive back that I'd got the job. And I was very excited to, to be able to say I'd got my first really well-paying professional job that would take my career to the next level. And I got home and the front door was wide open um, and there was nobody in the house at all. Um, so I had no idea what was going on. Um, and a neighbour came round and said, oh, your husband's been taken to the hospital. And what had transpired was that he'd had a, a suicide attempt while I'd been for my interview. Uh, and you can also almost hear the scenario. He was threatened by my success and his only response to that was to kill himself. Uh, so I dashed down to the hospital desperately to see what had happened. And not one person asked me how I was. So there was this flurry of activity around the alcoholic and his suicide. And nobody, nobody made any attempt to, to find out how I was feeling or what I was experiencing. And during that stay in hospital, obviously his suicide attempt was, was not successful. He must have had a conversation with Alcoholics Anonymous uh, because he came out of hospital and started on his AA journey. 
And um, he was in and out of AA, drinking and not drinking for a couple of years. Uh, but during that time, his sponsor suggested I uh, come to an Al-Anon meeting. His sponsor was a, a woman who had grown up in an alcoholic home and she also went to Al-Anon. So she took me to my first Al-Anon meeting and clearly I saw that this was the solution. They talked about these 12 steps of being powerlessness over the alcoholic. Um, well, I read this as a recipe to be able to change the alcoholic. And these steps meant nothing at all to me and my behaviour, but they meant that now I had a set of tools to help him stop drinking. And that was my focus in those two years of being in and out of uh, drinking and non-drinking and AA and non-AA. Okay. So, Jane, what brought you to think about seeking help? You'd contacted AA, but that obviously didn't solve the problem. I had three episodes where I had a breakdown. Um, I think living with the stress of the alcoholism, trying to live the lie and the life. And the last one I had, my eldest daughter was probably 15. And I was recommended to see a psychologist and she just kept wanting to talk about mum and she just kept well, she just kept delving into that and I'm thinking I'm here to get better and I was still quite ill and she said to me I really think you need to go to go to Al-Anon but she really touched on things and I'm like I can't go there it's disloyal and but I did try one meeting of Al-Anon and oh, it was in a church and it was a terrible wet day and I I thought oh I'm not like these people I'm better than that you know I'm he's not a real it's not a real alcoholic and I thought a lot of it was me I so I never went back and it was probably when my marriage broke up and I was saying my husband actually left me for someone else it was a couple few years later about three years later and my younger sister said because she lived at home with mum and dad for a lot she was a lot younger than us so she really grew up with mum in her worst alcoholism and she said to me, have you ever thought about going to Al-Anon? And I said, oh, I have had it mentioned to me. And she said, oh, you know, I'm, there's a good meeting, blah, blah. Have a try this meeting. There's a lot of different people there. And so I did go, but I only ever went for the next few years. I only ever went when things were really bad. And then I met my new partner and I could see, not that I could see my fault in the relationship, but I saw myself repeating, dealing with things the way I had with the alcoholic. And I knew I had to do something about it. So I decided that it was time to, yeah, go back. Okay, well, what if we take another short break there?
that song was Harry by Forlinda, courtesy of the Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. Bombs is a protest against like all the food waste. We, I guess, rescue food that would otherwise go to waste, make meals from that food, and serves them up to people who need a feed. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. We need to have a working vehicle. So we do need money to keep our van going. Very occasionally we have to buy some food. To donate to our current fundraiser, go to www.chaft.org forward slash project forward slash food not bombs pandemic support. Food not bombs is a 3CR supporter. Food not bombs. From every corner of the land, womankind are Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Uh, This is the Living Free Show on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Uh, today I'm talking with Lou and Jane, and we're talking about recovering from the family disease of alcoholism with the help of Al-Anon. So, Jane, you know, talking about coming to Al-Anon and sort of not, not fitting in, not really getting it, so how long did it take you before you sort of understood how Al-Anon could help you? So when I started, when I came back, I felt that I didn't deserve to be there. I, I listened to stories of other people. I thought, oh, they're so much worse than me. I don't sound like my story. I really need to be here. Not that I didn't need to be here. I didn't think that I was important enough to be there. And I would. I think for the first six months, all I focused on was what I was going to say if I got asked to share. So I wasn't really listening to what anyone else was saying. Um, but the more I went, the more I, um, I really started to benefit from it. But in all honesty, it's probably taken me, and I did get a, a sponsor to help me with the fourth step, and I've never, I haven't gone any further yet, but I've actually found through COVID, and it's really funny that there's something missing, and I think I haven't been doing the program, like I've been doing the program and I've had a lot of benefit out of it, but I really need to learn to work those steps. I finally, and I, you know, I I think we learn to trust in a higher power and I've always believed in a higher power but putting the trust I've found hard and I did a meeting a couple of months ago and this person they just kept popping up all the way through and I just messaged them and just said would you sponsor me and I went out in the backyard and I sat down I just bawled my eyes out and the relief was just amazing and I've had like I said since I've done Alan on the second time I've had a lot of benefits but I just cannot believe the last eight weeks have just been amazing. Um, and I think, you know, I just wanted someone to validate me that you 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 should be here. This is the right place. Yeah, I think it's just, you just have that insecurities. I'm not good enough. I'm not important enough. I'll say the wrong thing. I want, and my biggest thing is I want everybody to like me. So all those things, I don't know if it's making sense, but all those things have brought me, you know, to this year to really realise that I've, I've got to commit to this program 100%. And I listen to people in the meetings, Lou being one of them. I just think, when am I going to be like them? And I feel like I've started the journey to be like them. We are so, so fortunate to have this program. Yeah. Yeah. So what was it that sort of made you realise that you needed to do something yourself? It wasn't going to solve itself. 
I think I've come to believe too in my family. We have a one recovering alcoholic, a brother who's not in a program at the moment. But everybody's got the isms. And I think it's just that you don't escape it. You just don't come out free of this awful, awful disease. And, yeah, we have a family that, yeah, a lot to say and a lot of gossip and all that sort of stuff, even though we really love each other. And I think, yeah, it was just, I just sort of felt like I had a little hole and I probably wasn't, you know, I'd, on the Zoom meetings, I was like, I'm not wrapped in the Zoom meeting, so I'd do half an hour and click off. And I thought, you're just letting this go. And then we had one meeting where we could actually go in person and I loved that. And then I just thought, no, you've got to do this. And I was missing, I wasn't doing the program properly. And now that I'm back doing it, it's, I don't know. I, I mean, I've got a long way to go, but I'm just... I'm just using different little things I've heard in the meeting because I'm at home. I might write down something someone says and just focus on that for a couple of days. Yeah. So I don't know what was missing, but I think it was a war. I think it was probably my high power saying, come on, you've got to do this properly and it's going to be hard. But yeah, you've got to, you've got to do the work. Only you can look into your soul and see, see what's missing. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've got what, a lot of things in my life now is when I lived with my alcoholic husband was what I wanted. And I've got a lot of those, 75% of that stuff now. And it's, but I still was missing something. And I know that that's, that's Eleanor. That's, that's, and I was just saying to my younger sister the other day, like, how fortunate are we that, you know, we have this because we have the three others that don't in our family. And I'm not saying we're better than them or anything, but, yeah, it's something special, definitely. So how long have you been in Alan? I'd say five years. I've been back in, yeah. Right, okay, thank you. So, Lou, uh, sort of same question to you. you. You tried to control the alcoholic, tried to use the tools of Alan to control the alcoholic. So how did that go? Not very well. <laughs> uh, I just got sicker and sicker and I didn't get it that... Um, you can't control another person. And it took me a long time to really understand that and uh, to stop trying it. Um, I sort of look at my Al-Anon recovery was very much about learning to live with an alcoholic and with a violent alcoholic. So my early Al-Anon years, um, I learned lots and lots of practical things about how to protect myself. And so they taught me to, you know, always carry some money in your pocket. It was the days before mobile phones. So I made sure that I had 10 pence pieces to use a phone box with to call my sponsor. Always stick the car keys and the phone phone and the house keys in your pocket because you never know when you're going to get locked out. And I was on frequent occasions locked out of my home in my nightdress. <laughs> Not a good look, really. <laughs> so Eleanor taught me lots of practical things. And, and they also taught me that I didn't need to accept unacceptable behaviour. So despite the fact that I didn't quite get it, it saved me. And the next stage in my Eleanor recovery was that uh, I didn't have to live with an alcoholic. So that, again, was another re- revelation that uh, I got the courage to leave that violent relationship. So despite the fact that this person was sober and in AA 10 years, life was just so hard uh, and still violent and still a lot of uh, aggression and um, they call it the dry drunk. So he hadn't drunk for many years, um, but there was still this volatility every weekend. So I got the courage to leave that relationship. And I came to Australia some time after that, quite a few years after that, Uh, I've been in Australia now, what, about 16 years or so, uh, maybe a little bit longer. And I think when I came to Al-Anon meetings in Australia, a bit like Jane said, I I knew there was something still missing. So I I kept in touch with Al-Anon and kept in touch with my meetings. But I started to see uh, the real message that Al-Anon gives me is that that Al-Anon is a way of life and a way of living that is in within within my control or within, within my grasp even. Um, so now I see that Al-Anon shows me a way to live. When I spoke about that little girl who was always lost and not 
belonging. I felt as though everybody had, else had a book of how to make decisions and how to live life and how to choose your career and nobody had given it to me. And my Al-Anon programme is that book. Nobody gives me advice in Al-Anon, but I've got a set of principles to follow. If I'm anxious about something, I start to explore why I'm anxious. If I'm trying to control another person, then that's a sign for me that I'm dissatisfied with something. So I'll talk to another Al-Anon member about what that might be and we'll find out together how I might behave differently. If I'm wanting to do something, sponsor will say to me, examine your motives, Louise. Um, so I have these, these tools that I've gained over the years. And, and I've been in Al-Anon longer than I haven't been in Al-Anon. Um, I'm just a very slow learner. But I wouldn't give it up for a million dollars. It's a book of life. And it's a, a way to guide uh, my decision making. Um, in Al-Anon, I went back to university. I got myself a profession. Um, I have a professional career. I'm... I'm fully self-supporting in the full meaning of the word. Um, I have a wonderful husband who is very thoughtful and kind. Do we have problems? Of course we do. Um, but I've got an Al-Anon rule book to follow this time. Um, so I don't get involved in things that aren't my business. Uh, and I'm mindful that my behaviour is my responsibility. Um, and, and that's how I live today. And life is so much easier. That's good, isn't it? Just to be able to relax, relax and live, yeah. So, Jane, you know, been in Ellen for five years. So, how has your life changed now? I'm more relaxed myself. So, I've always, I feel like I've suffered from anxiety, but the more I look at it now, I think my situation was a very big part of that. I'm still a people pleaser, but probably not to as big an extent as I was, as it was. And I'm learning. A bit like Louise mentioned, um, when something's wrong um, or if I my behaviour is not what it should be, yeah, it's what's, or if I'm really angry at someone or annoyed or whatever, I'm trying to learn to look at myself and find out what's going on with me and often there's something there, there's a trigger. I mightn't find it straight away. I realise that. I don't have to be involved with toxic people because I don't want to hurt their feelings. That's a big one for me. I never wanted to hurt anyone's feelings. I'm learning to be trying, this is a hard one for me, but trying to be respectful of the family and not talking about other family members, you know, to other family members, um, which has been a big thing in my whole family. And I think probably one of the biggest things that's been a benefit for me in Al-Anon was I was very controlling over my kids, not in a you do this, sit down, you know, clean this, do that, but just especially my daughter, way too involved in their lives. And I love them dearly and we have a close relationship, but I've taken I mind my own business and I've kind of watched both of them thrive. Um, my son more quickly, but just the last probably two years, I've just seen my daughter really, yeah, even though they've both got isms and I'm sad that I picked the wrong partner and, I've had to watch them go through that in their lives. But I can make amends to them. And they, they've said to me, Mum, you did the best you could. You could, you know, it wasn't a good situation. You did the best you could. And, you know, and I see them, especially my daughter, you know, making a lot of mistakes. But she said to me what I thought about my mum. She, This was probably five years ago. She said, Mum, I don't do anything without thinking what will mum think. And I just thought I'm just repeating the whole thing, you know. What I didn't like, I'm doing to her. So... Probably for me, I, I do believe, and it doesn't work for everyone, but one person gets better and I think it does help other people to get better. And I think that, I think going to Al-Anon has, it mightn't have benefited their dad, but it's definitely benefited them. I think me not being so interfering and so stressed all the time. My new partner said to me, do you realise that when your kids ring, this was, I mean, we've been together for eight years now, but in early days, he said, do you realise when your kids are in, you don't even say hello, you say what's wrong. <laughs> so now I've learned to say hello and not be worried. Yeah. And it usually was a disaster or something, but, you know, things happen and, you know, we move on from it. So, yeah. So I think that's probably my one of my biggest things. And learning about myself, learning to keep the focus on me. And when I can do that, the anxiety drops away when I'm not involved in other people's lives and trying to fix things. 
So Lou, what about you? What about your relationship with your, was it your daughter? Uh, no, a son, I have a son. Uh, and, and a bit like Jane was saying, my son was very forgiving and generous. You know, you did the best you could, mum. But unlike Jane, I'd introduced this man. This man wasn't his father and he saw, I kidded myself that he didn't experience or see the violence. But when that relationship ended, we both shared how we had experienced violence. So he too had experienced violence that I didn't know and he didn't know I had. So he has been very generous as an adult. He's in his 40s now. And we have a, a great relationship and I have two beautiful grandchildren. Has it always been that case? No. Sometimes, uh, I think when, when he had his um, first child, our relationship wobbled a bit because I could see that he was, he was sort of thinking, how could you, mum? You know, I want to do the very best for this little bundle here. Why didn't you do the very best for me? And I could, I could feel that tension between us. Uh, he's a bit more relaxed now. He's got two kids, and he's not so so precious over it. But but um, uh, I, I could see that there was there was hurt from his childhood. One of the incidents that neither of us will ever forget is hiding in a bush in the holiday in Spain because the alcoholic had gone off on one. Um, we had to ask the ask the hotel manager for a room for our safety. Well, you don't get over that as a child very quickly. Uh, it's bad enough as an adult, but those are the sorts of scenarios that my son has lived through. So I'm very grateful that he's had the generosity to uh, forgive me for the mistakes. He followed me to Australia as, as a grown-up. Um, so that sort of demonstrates the, the strength of relationship we have. And he, he wants me in his life. He wants me in his children's life. And that's thanks to Eleanor. I'm actually quite a nice person now, don't tell anybody. <laughs> I wouldn't have been without Eleanor uh, because I wouldn't have known how to behave. Um, and some of the small things like being able to say no when I mean no instead of yes as I used to. And the little things, if someone would compliment me, you know, that's a lovely dress you're wearing, Louise. I'd, I'd make excuses and say, oh, I didn't pay much for it or it was second hand or I got it at the up shop. And now I just have to say thank you. Uh, and what a simple lesson to learn. If you're interested in contacting Alan on family groups, you can do that by phone on 1300 252 666 or you can go online at alanon.org.au. Well, listen, that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Lou and Jane for joining me and sharing their Alanon family groups recovery experience with us. Thank you both. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Bill. I hope you'll be able to listen again next week when we'll be talking with members of Gamblers Anonymous. Uh, thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay tuned for more Radical Radio on 3CR Community Radio.